Jerry Wills has been exploring lost civilizations for decades, leading expeditions to remote locations, trying to find evidence of ancient civilizations. He's also a very talented psychic healer who, from very early in life, began spontaneous healing. And also, he's a contactee. He's had experiences with different extraterrestrials, and some have shared with him some incredible information about his true origins. You're listening to Exopolitics Today with Dr. Michael Sala, your source for the uncensored truth regarding the human, extraterrestrial, global, and political agenda. Click the like button and subscribe to this channel. And now, here's Dr. Michael Sala. Welcome, Jerry, to Exopolitics Today. Thank you, Michael. It, it really is a privilege to be here. Thank you so much for the invitation. I really appreciate it. Well, I've heard of your story for well over a decade. I remember listening to um, a mutual friend and colleague, uh, Kevin Smith, who had his own show, and he was a former international policeman, and he was exploring topics of interest to both of us. And I remember listening to his interviews and investigations that he was doing with you well over a decade ago. So that, that was amazing. So I'm very happy to be finally able to meet you and get to talk to you about some of the expeditions you've done and your own incredible background. Well, thank you. Thank you very much. Kevin was actually ended up being one of the best friends I've ever had in the world. And he was just an amazing broadcaster. I really had a lot of respect for him. Yeah, I was very sad when uh, I heard about his passing because he was doing some groundbreaking work and investigations. So, uh, yeah, definitely. I, I, I just I, I couldn't help but think, what was there, was there something um, kind of like unnatural in his, in his death? Um, was, was he silenced? No, what had happened, Kevin, uh, very few people knew this, but Kevin had a very serious heart condition. And because of a whole series of events that basically put him into a, a real terrific jam financially, uh, he couldn't afford the medicine. Um, he really couldn't, he didn't have any insurance. And, <clears throat> you know, I visited him, my wife Kathy and I visited him uh, a lot when he was away from the phoenix area we would we were we hung out a lot when he was in the phoenix area we visited him several times he was uh, in the chicago area and you know he just didn't let on like anything was happening but at one of the shows that he was doing he had uh, also an issue with diabetes that i didn't didn't even know about and he had passed out during the break and was on the on the floor and i wasn't watching that night so i had numerous people calling me saying do you know something's wrong with kevin you know he's just he hasn't come back which was very uncharacteristic of him so i got a hold of people that i knew could find out and they checked in on him and he had uh diabetic coma he'd passed out so he got the help he needed um and then you know the heart condition it just just progressed uh the day that he passed away was his birthday and uh kathy and i had him on speakerphone 
when he got out of the hospital, he went to the hospital for this. Uh, he'd come back from the hospital, had some medication that they had provided him with, and I had him on the phone. We talked for probably 15 minutes, and he said, you know, I'm just, I'm just really tired. I think I'm going to lay down and just take a nap. He laid down, and he never woke up. Uh, I, I know a lot of people were quite devastated by that, and of course, I, I was just, I don't know, it was just one of the more difficult things to experience in life. You know, someone that you feel is like one of the best friends in the world, you just talk to him, and now, hell, he's dead. It, it was very hard to reconcile. Um, he had... And during that, that, that conversation and previous conversations, he always said, if anything happens to me, don't let people think they got to me. And he explained his medical condition. And he said, I, you know, there's only one person I trust with my show, and that's you, speaking about me. And uh, I'd like for you to try to keep it going if anything should happen to me. Well, we tried, and there's no way I could fill his shoes. So... Um, it just sort of faded away, and, and that was the end of it. Well, very unfortunate, because he was working on some really amazing cases, and uh, we'll get to talk about some of those cases uh, later. Sure. But I want to now shift to, to you, because uh, your story is quite amazing. Uh, you know, Going back to uh, September 11, 1953, where you suddenly show up at someone's uh, doorstep. So uh, can you just explain... What, what happened in terms of uh, you discovering the circumstances behind your adoption and, and how your parents actually took custody of you? Well, that story wasn't made, um, wasn't made, you know, an awareness to me until, you know, golly, years and years later. Um, but basically, what I know about it is what I've been able to gather from different people because honestly I don't remember it I mean there are things I remember that I can't put my finger on what what the hell am I remembering but there are things that I do recall and um, uh, Kathy could you take care of the AC it just switched back on please um, apparently there was an arrangement that had been made with President Eisenhower. And that arrangement was an attempt to try and do something positive for this world because there were negative influences also involved with this world and have been for a very long time from what I've been told. So this arrangement was the ETs were not going to be overt and just land and say, woohoo, we're here, and guess what? We're going to make things so much better. Apparently, they tried that a very long time ago, a few thousand years ago, and it didn't work out at all. So in this particular scenario, the plan was they were going to bring children here, very, very young children, and place them with parents so that they would grow up here, be familiar with this world, be a part of this world, and as a result of that, instead of being an outside influence coming in, already predisposed with their philosophies and knowledge, they would bring the children here. The children would grow up. 
and they would have access to various pieces of information. And growing up here, they would be people of this world. They would be part of the society, part of the framework of this world. And the things that they could introduce that were supposed to help the people of this world would be seen basically as, you know, marvelous innovations that um, it was hoped would bring this world to a point where there was, well, maybe a better future. <clears throat> I hesitate to say peace because I don't think this world has really ever known peace except when there weren't any people here. Well, I was found in an abandoned farmhouse. And where? I really am not clear. Uh, but it had to have been close to, I'm guessing anyway, close to um, Fort Knox Army Base in Kentucky. Uh, when I was found, they were supposed to have picked me up, let's say, 11 o'clock, you know, in the morning. Uh, but instead, um, or no, 11 o'clock at night, but instead I got picked up 11 o'clock the next night. Just, it was just a mess. So I was basically frostbed over most of my body um, and just cold. You know, I mean, babies wet their diapers and it just becomes quite a mess if you just leave them sitting there for a long period of time. Well, that's what had happened to me. And I'd been there for a, quite a while in, in cold weather. Um, so at that point, I was taken to Fort Knox Medical Center and I stayed there for a period of time. Again, I have no idea how long. And then I was handed off to someone in the army uh, he and his wife could not have children, and uh, it's because the woman had, uh, as a child, played with radium paste. They would rub it on their teeth and then smile and it'd glow in the dark. So it, it sterilized her, and then um, they handed me off to them. So how I know about this is from two different resources. One is uh, I met a man in Tempe, Arizona. Uh, I, I say a rather old gentleman, but at the time he was, you know, probably 40 years on me, maybe more. And I was in my early 30s at the time. Um, he told me when I was talking at a small gathering of people about this experience and after it was all said and done, and I walked out, went to have a cigarette, and just, you know, get away from everybody, he was dressed in his uniform. And he came up, and he told me that he was just absolutely amazed to meet me. He said, you see, I was one of those airmen that was, or one of those, one of those soldiers, he said, that was there to retrieve you. And he told me the whole story from his perspective. Now, was the guy crazy, or was he telling the truth? Well, I, I think he was telling the truth. I mean, he was just, the, the look in his face and the feeling I got from him, I mean, he was, he was quite adamant. So that was called Project Red Light. And it was, uh, again, part of that uh, agreement with Eisenhower that was made apparently in California. 
Well, um, the other resource for my information came from the contacts with extraterrestrials that I started having uh, well, I was about 12 and a half years old. And remember, we were living in a really remote area in Kentucky. You know, the nearest town was about 20 miles away. And uh, just, you know, that's, that's where I was at. Up to the time uh, that my father died, he died when I was seven. That would be my adopted father. Uh, we were living in Denver, Colorado. Well, actually, Aurora, Colorado, but it's just a homogenous area. Um, and from the earliest memories that I have being there, uh, there's always this set of unusual circumstances where um, I was frequently visited with him and my adopted mother present, of course, but frequently visited by uh, people from the military. I don't know, maybe it was Air Force. I, I kind of think it was, because uh, the people at the uh, Fort Knox base, that was before the Air Force, that was the Army Air Corps, and it became the Air Force. And I think this was Air Force that was visiting me because they were always, you know, so happy to meet me, to see me, and to tell me that as soon as I was able to, that I was going to be going to the Air Force Academy and I would become um, a soldier. Uh, that my education would be taken care of, everything that I needed would be taken care of, and so forth. I was always showered with um, terrific levels of books. And, you know, I, I learned to read very early on and had no trouble retaining information. So my mother and my teachers in school always said that I was their little scientist. And that's cute. But all that changed when he passed away. And when he passed away, the uh, fellows that always showed up, and there was a number of them, but on the, the, the day that he died, because he died in the morning, and by that afternoon, there were these folks from the military who showed up and they were going to take me. And uh, my adopted mother wouldn't allow that to happen. And she ordered them out. Well, there were guys there in suits with briefcases and big guys with all kinds of, um, you know, decorations on their chest and hats with, you know, emblems on the hats and, there was probably seven people there altogether, and they were just adamant that um, I was going to go with them. But she produced a birth certificate and said, no, he's my son, and you're not taking him anywhere. I don't know whatever happened in that respect, because they, they left. They never showed up that I ever saw. And it was shortly after that that we moved to Kentucky from Aurora, Colorado. It was a much different life there, and... <clears throat> living way back in the hills, basically, uh, you really don't go to town but one or two times a year. I mean, life was a complete 180 uh, twist and much different than anything I'd experienced before. So, 
uh, they, they never showed up and I just learned to live on the farm and it would be from seven seven years old until 12 and a half years old that really nothing that I recall uh, that was odd really ever took place. There were a series of UFO sightings that were taking place during that time. And uh, as I recall, I think, I don't remember the years really, but it's got to be like um, early 60s. There were a lot of UFO sightings around that area, and we weren't that far from Fort Knox. So that'd be in Radcliffe, Kentucky. And we weren't that far, probably 45 to an hour's drive. So at 12 and a half years old, there was this really big UFO that showed up over the trees. And it just, it just hung there. It looked like a dirigible, but it was not as thick as a dirigible is that you would think of seeing. There was a moon that was out. I don't recall if it was full moon, but I think it might have been. It was glinting off of the hull of this this craft. And aside from the fact that it was just so huge, and it was just right there in front of me, probably 1,500 feet away, it had very, very large, round um, lights on it that were pastel. They, they weren't like bright red or bright green. These were like a pastel, very soft pastel, yellow and pink and blue. And I don't remember all the colors that it was really, but there were five of them and it would cycle from one end to the other. They would come up in brightness and dim down. The next one would come up in brightness and dim down and so on till it reached the end. And then it would go back the other way slowly the tops of the trees were whipping back and forth these were um these were like i don't know pine trees perhaps uh they were pretty tall probably 50 foot tall trees uh part of the old forest there and um there was a power line that ran right from where i was watching right across to where this was at so it stayed there, and I, my inclination was just to jump the fence and just race over there towards it, because I ran everywhere I went. I was quite fast, quite able. And as I was getting ready to do that, there was this, you know, you say a voice in your head, but it wasn't like a voice. It was just like a knowing. It's like, no, don't don't come close. Just stay where you are and watch. We'll come and see you when we're ready. And so I stood there watching this, thinking, well, I just want to go anyway. I didn't. And it took off very slowly. Now, where we were living uh, is in the hills of Kentucky. So this took off and apparently went over the hill um, right in front of me. And I didn't see it, but within, I don't know, a short time, I mean, it must have been 10 minutes um i i heard jets you know flying i never saw them but after that uh we had these uh, large now i know they're b-52s humongous jets that would flow low over the trees and just circle around where we lived and that happened i don't know at least twice a year 
So I don't know if that was a normal thing or not, but it just didn't seem normal to me. It would be, let's see, that was around October, sometime in October that that happened. So it wouldn't be until the following spring, after I turned, uh, I'd already turned 13, and that's when the contacts started happening. Well, and, uh, Jerry, before we get into your contacts, I'd, I'd just like to you know, just explore what you said about uh, the agreement that was reached uh, between Eisenhower or the presidency and extraterrestrials where they would avoid problems of the past by the extraterrestrials dropping babies off. Because I know for some people, you know, that that's going to be, you know, incredible bombshell that that you could be one of these extraterrestrial babies that were dropped off in 1953. But I, I wanted to just sh you know, share a little bit about a document that was released by the Defence Intelligence Agency, actually leaked by the Defence Intelligence Agency. And this was a briefing from, a, I think it was at the end of the Bush administration, Oh, sorry, at the beginning of, of the first Bush administration in 1989, just after Reagan, and it was a briefing document, and that talked about um, a, a crash at, at Aztec, the Aztec UFO crash in 1949. And this briefing document talked about a, an adult extraterrestrial human-looking that was found alive in the craft along with some dead grey aliens, um, some other adult-looking uh, human, and uh, three uh, babies. And the extraterrestrials said that these babies were a gift for humanity. And, uh, and agreements, or there, there were, this extraterrestrial stayed behind for a year, met with Truman, met with Eisenhower. Agreements were reached for a program where the extraterrestrials would do exactly what you said, dropping off babies. And that these I've would be raised... Yeah, this this is uh, this is a document uh, uh, leaked from the Defense Intelligence Agency, and it, in there it talks about this program where the, where the babies uh, were brought as um, as a gift uh, to the American people, and the same thing was going to be happening in the Soviet Union. And uh, so this document, I can sh I, I can send you the link later so you can uh, take a look at it. You'll, you'll be intrigued yeah, by to. that. Um, it, it, it does a set off a diplomatic program where what you described actually was happening. So not only do you have that uh, old man that appeared telling you this, and not only do you have the extraterrestrials who told you something similar, but now you have actually a document, a leaked Defence Intelligence Agency document talking about that very program to drop off extraterrestrial babies who would be raised as humans and you know, their gifts would somehow enrich and prepare humanity for disclosure. I am just speechless. I had no idea such a thing even existed. You know, the, the big thing at my end is that I've been talking about this for a very long time. It isn't the first time on your show. 
and I've told people in confidence first, and then I was asked to speak. Some of those folks I told in confidence, you really need to talk about this in public. So I did. And I was always, I was always approached with, sure, prove it. Well, so, you know, I have no way to prove it. This is just what I know. And, you know, believe it or don't believe it. I really don't give a damn. But it's just what I know. Um, to find out about this, it raises the hair on the back of my neck because maybe there is a chance that what this document is going to um, expose will add to some semblance of reality, you know, that I'm telling the truth. I know I have been, but, you know, how do you, how do you go about telling the truth about something like that so other people accept it as truth? And that's the problem. So I've, you know, I've, I've never been hardcore about it. In other words, I've never said something that was disparaging about someone who challenges it because, you know, how can I even prove it? It's just something I know. But with this document, my God, I, I'm just, that, that's, that's pretty amazing. What else is out there that I don't know about? Right. Well, there's also uh, stories about Nikola Tesla um, that Tesla also believed and was told by extraterrestrials that, that he was dropped off as a baby. And there's a book uh, by a Tesla uh, researcher or acolyte. He was a companion, uh, Arthur Matthews. And in his book, Wall of Light, he describes that Tesla was told and believed that he was dropped off as a baby and that uh, his incredible abilities were a product of him actually being an extraterrestrial and that this and his goal was to kind of share this incredible information so that's the book uh, the wall of light uh, by arthur matthews and and so you know this is another example of a extraterrestrial child being dropped off as a baby and raised by humans and they have abilities that would help humanity kind of like get ready for becoming a galactic civilization and that's exactly what what tesla did yeah exactly right and with the information that i was told because my my encounter started um just several months I don't remember exactly how many, but it was um, really the following summer. So let's say six months later. Um, you know, from that point until I was 18, I was meeting up with these folks at least once a week and, and sometimes um, not that often, uh, twice a week, but occasionally. And the whole point of it was to provide some information, some instruction, some companionship, perhaps, because my situation in Kentucky was not a pleasant one. And they knew that at one point, um, because my mother remarried and my stepfather was uh, a very violent drunk. And I took off running, got away from the house, and I mean, this house, and then the forest <laughs> for miles and miles and miles. So I took off, got out of there, and this one fellow uh, I always talked to, his name 
uh, is Zo, just Z, like, you know, Z, and then O, so Zo, that's how he pronounced it. Uh, I was, I don't know, 14, 14 and a half at the time, and I was very upset. I had witnessed my mother getting slapped to the floor, and he was coming after me next, and I got out of there. So Zoe told me if I wanted to, I could go home. And I said, what do you mean? Because they hadn't told me anything about this. I didn't even know I was adopted at this point. Not a clue. And he said, well, I, I think maybe you should know that these aren't really your parents. You were adopted. And if you're in a bad situation, then we need to get you out of it. We can take you back home. And so that freaked me out. And I went back home. Uh, my stepdad had gone. I don't know where he went. And he um, or she, you know, wanted to know where I'd been because I'd been gone for a couple of hours. And it was now dark. And I had been, you know, quite honest with her. I told her that I was meeting up with extraterrestrials, you know, people from UFOs down in the forest. And she didn't like that at all. She forbade me from doing it, but I still did it anyway. How could I not? They were nice people. Well, anyway, I told her that I had been told by one of them that I was adopted and she just went white as a ghost I'll never forget it and she was shaking all over and just really upset and she went rummaging through this metal box and I still have the metal box and she pulled out my birth certificate she said this proves that you're my son I don't know who it is you're talking to I don't want you talking to him anymore and she was crying and angry and everything all at the same time and so it's like okay you know, that's fine, whatever. And I felt bad that I'd hurt her feelings, you know, like that, and it made her cry. She'd already been through enough. Well, I told Zoe that, you know, I was going to stay. So that was fine. It was up to me. And I wouldn't find out until I was 38 years old when they showed up to tell me that she was going to die in December. And this was October another October, they showed up in Phoenix at my home um, and one in person. Zoe was there and wanted to let me know that my mother's going to die in December and if I wanted to make peace with her that this was the only chance I was going to have if I went very, very soon. I won't get into the reasons why I didn't want to. There's no point in it, but um, I said, no, it's fine. I have nothing to say to her. There had been a major falling out. And he says, all right. Well, we're very concerned about your emotional health and your mental health. And I've got to tell you a story about yourself that you don't know, but you need to be prepared for this because you're going to find out, not just from us, but from others. And he proceeded to tell me the story as I related it to you earlier about Eisenhower babies being brought here and you know that whole dynamic and he says you were adopted and we don't want this to damage you emotionally intellectually uh we, we don't want you to you know be so upset that you can't function and i said i look nothing like them 
I am nothing like them. And I don't see how it's going to make any difference to me. Well, sure enough, December, just as they said, when they said, she passed away. And within a couple of days, of course, there's going to be the funeral. Uh, there were my sisters, which I'm sure they're adopted as well. Nothing like me. My one sister called and said, are you sitting down? I need to tell you something. I overheard some of the men talking. And you need to know this. And I said, sure, what is it? And she proceeded to tell me how the men were talking about they don't know where I came from. That I was just suddenly there. And that there was a twin of myself. Her name was Barbara. And she'd been provided to the sister of the woman who was my mother. She had died. Um, but that they didn't know where I came from and that I had been adopted. And she says, check your birth certificate. So I took a look. So I never looked at it. What's the point? And what I discovered, there's really nothing on it. I mean, it's, it's, it's devoid of all the pertinent information. Uh, there's a date of September 11th, 1953 for my birth date. I find that unlikely, just a feeling I have, really, nothing else. But later, Zoe would tell me that my birthday was something very, very important, that that date wasn't chosen at random. I never knew what that meant until September 11th, when the Twin Towers came down. Because uh, Zoe had shown me a series of events that were going to take place on this world, potentially. That there were two paths. One path was advancement of this world and its people. The other path was the decimation of this world and the further um, degradation of the people who live upon it. And that we were going to come to some some crossroads. The crossroads, he said, and you'll remember this, he told me, is when the world goes to Riyadh. What is Riyadh? And of course, I'm 15, so I don't know what Riyadh is anyway. When Desert Storm happened, there was huge type on the newspapers. The world goes to Riyadh. Well, that's where Desert Storm started. And when I saw that, I felt pretty bad because then I understood that the way that things are going on in this world was not going towards advancement and peace and achievement. It was going the other direction. And so then when September 11th, uh, two, was 2001, occurred, then I understood why he told me that my birthday was important to remember it. So, what do you do with information like that? It's kind of gee whiz information. I don't know what to do with it. Um, as far as the information they provided me with, <clears throat> it was technical information. 
my background's in electronics engineering, and I've always had um, really a multifaceted curiosity about biology, geology, chemistry, electronics, astrophysics, physics, you know, all within the scientific realm. And, you know, I, I, uh, I applied some of that. But I was also, at a very early age, quite capable psychically. And I didn't understand that other people couldn't see the things I was seeing. You know, it was just confusing to me. You know, I could pick something up and I could know the story about it. Now we call that um, psychometry. Um, I could see people who had passed away. And that happened pretty frequently. I knew what was going to happen near and far future to some extent if I was asked the question. You know, these things aren't present really at all. But at the time, they were quite powerful when I was a teenager. Um, and then one day, this fellow hurt himself climbing off a tractor. And again, to me, it's an older fellow. I mean, look at me. I'm almost 70. And so I'm an older fellow, too. But to me, this guy was really an older fellow. And he, he boogered up his knee. And it was hurting him badly. Well, I'd already been looking inside, because that's what happens when I put my hands on somebody. It just becomes transparent to me. I can see. So I, I told him I'd rub his knee. And I put my hands there and saw what was happen, happening. And I just, because I've been doing this with animals for a few years, so I just fixed it. Well, that didn't work out so well. I mean, he, he was out of pain, and he could walk home, and he lived about eh, half a mile to a mile away. Across muddy fields, seems like a long time to get there, you know, when you're walking across muddy fields. But um, word got out that I had done this, and in the hills, folks are very superstitious. And if you fix somebody's knee like I did, you're either Jesus or the devil. And I sure as hell wasn't Jesus. Something was wrong with that boy. So then I started getting ostracized. And then I was basically not really welcome at church. I didn't go much anyway. And uh, the community was uh, raising an eyebrow about me. And so I just kept quiet. I learned to stay quiet. So about 18 years old, Zoe told me that it was time for me to go out into the world and be like everyone else in this world. Go out, do the things other people in this world do. Get a job, work. You know, all these things. I have never had a firm concept of money. I've, I've never found that to be a driving element in my life. Um, success is measured whether I'm happy with what I'm doing or not. And uh, I went out into the world and fell on my face. 
because no one had a philosophy like mine. So I learned what it meant to get crap jobs and, you know, put in a lot of effort for very little remuneration. Um, it wasn't until I was actually a year after I left home at 18, I was picked up by a company called Kessinger's Industries, and that was in Elizabethtown, Kentucky. And um, for whatever reason, they decided I needed to have a lab all my own. <laughs> I mean, a fully outfitted lab. <clears throat> I'd never been to college. I was a high school graduate. So they had one fellow, Ph.D., from um, from Princeton that would show up for one week, and then another fellow who's a Ph.D., both electronics, show up from Harvard, and he would stay a week, and back and forth over the course of, you know, a couple of years, they tutored me in electronics. And then they wanted me to build things that uh, they were having some need for or some issue with. So I did um, until I saw Walter Cronkite on the evening news showing this dandy little device. It was about the size of an iPhone, but thicker. It had a plunger on it. And if you push the plunger down, there's this thing called a Claymore mine that would just blow people apart. And I walked away from that job and went and became a dishwasher at Jerry's Restaurant. It is outside the dynamics of why I'm here to cause harm. And that really sickened me that I've been tricked into making something like that. Anyway, uh, Jerry, uh, I just wanted to kind of like um, put some context into this. So, you know, when you were seven years old, your adopted father dies. And there's, you, you mentioned like seven military, civilian, dark suit people wanting to kind of like take you away. And there was talk about you joining the Air Force Academy. So they, so they wanted to put you into the military, but your adopted mother, you know, adamantly refused to let them take you. So, so you just, you know, spent your, the rest of your childhood with your adopted mother, uh, your, your abilities started to emerge, your, your talents in various areas, especially the psychic. And then at 18, uh, rather than there being any effort to bring you into the military again, there was this kind of like roundabout way whereby, uh, you know, as you said, you're, you're, you're given access to this fully equipped lab. You're a high school graduate and you've got these PhDs from Harvard and elsewhere coming in and tutoring yeah. you and helping you develop inventions and, and this kind of like, and that they're wanting to utilize you for developing weapons. And, and, and well, that, one course, weapon, that one, one thing weapon. was a weapon. The other thing, other things that I made were, useful um <clears throat> at the time red leds were not a thing but they wanted to have something for the vietnam war that would be easy to use in the field 
that would help reduce pain and would also speed wound healing. <clears throat> well, when I was, I don't remember, about 13, I got very, very sick. I thought I was going to die. And I didn't show up when Zoe signaled for me to come out and meet up with them. This was almost 14 years old. Actually, it's 14 years old. Sorry. Anyway, it was in the winter time, like November. It was cold. And I drank this water out of the well where some mice or rats, I don't know, probably mice, but they'd fallen in there and decomposed. And I drink lots of water. So I got some of this, and who knows what the hell I had wrong with me, but I was really sick. Well, I was carried out in the middle of the night. I was just in my underwear, and they had me on this metal-like table that floated, and the ones that came and got me looked like the greys. Uh, they were a little taller and not as dark-colored. Anyway, took me out, went inside this UFO. I was in and out of consciousness because I was so sick. I remember waking up because it was cold as hell and just there on my underwear. Um, when I was inside, I was uh, more awake because it was warmer and I was really startled by where I was at. And um, here are these tall, bluish-white they look like greys, but they're not greys. They still have big heads and big eyes, but they weren't like the little short guys. I've seen those. Anyway, they had me on this table, and right behind me on my head, if I looked up far back, I could see it was just like this flat panel with all the stuff going on it, images and symbols and whatnot. Now we would call that a flat screen TV. I've got one here in front of me. <laughs> monitor. By the time, no one ever heard of that sort of thing. So I was getting very freaked out by this whole thing. I'd never seen anything like these people before. It was always Zoe, and Zoe looked like a person. And the people that he brought to visit with me, they look like people also. So now here are these, these guys that are, you know, maybe, I'm guessing, you know, five eight uh, six one somewhere in there they were tall taller than me at that age and i'm pretty uncomfortable with the whole situation and i don't know what the hell to do so they walked out of the room left me there and a few seconds later zoe walks in and he's got this typical half grin on his face and he's like just relax don't worry, don't be afraid. They're here to help you. You're very sick. So they're going to help you. Then they walked back in, and they never said anything. But Zoe told me just to relax and lay back and let them do what they needed to do. They were going to help me to be better. Well, I wanted to be better because I was really sick. I mean, so sick I thought I was going to die. So, um, the one thing I remember... After they were touching things on me, and these things lit up uh, different colors, but the one that was the most predominant was a little stick that had a red light at the end of it, which now I would say is like a red LED. Uh, they gave me a shot, one in each arm, and, and I went to sleep. And I woke up back in bed. 
So when these folks at Kessinger's Industries wanted to know about something that would make you know person well, Zoe had already told me what I'd seen in there and told me about the propensity of red light on the human physiology and what it could do. So I already knew, yeah, I know something will work really good. <laughs> so um, they got me some red LEDs. I put together a package. And it was immediately, uh, when I was done, it was just whisked off and classified, you know, top secret, I guess. And I never saw it again for decades. But then, I guess, that classification was removed. And um, now you can find them all over the place. And still, people don't really understand how powerful red light can be for many, many reasons. But that's just one of the things that I was instructed on uh, on on what to do how to build it i mean there's a, a whole litany of other things that uh you know i work for different companies and you know you work for other companies you basically sign your your life away to them if you invent something it belongs to them um and i was really operating from a point of altruism you know my goal was to do something to help others well <laughs> their goal was to make the big bucks and that's what they did with these things so yeah that's just another chapter out of the the weird life of jerry wills right so from age 18 so from 18 up until i guess uh, early 40s you're you're working with uh, different companies uh inventing things and uh they kind of mining you for whatever knowledge you have for whatever inventions that come up and some some of the things that you invented are just taken away or you know i guess they they got the well, patents they, for whatever you invented exactly and it wasn't a prolific level of in, in uh inventing things it was something here something there um i finally just got tired of the whole the whole thing i don't remember how old i was but i had my um I found it difficult to work for other people because I, my concept of time, <laughs> yeah, I have a hard, a hard, um, circumstance with time. I just don't get it. But anyhow, um, no, I, I had invented, um, a few things for this company called, uh, Western medical and, you know, you want a $50,000 grant? Sign on the dotted line. Go invent stuff. Make sure you have your salary in there, too. Well, okay, what do I need? I had a few hundred bucks a month, you know, because other things are bringing in money, so I don't need a whole lot. I said, $50,000? Boy, hell, I can I can build that for 27000 Are you kidding me? Well, you've got 50000 Anything left over, then we'll just get it back, or you can keep it. So I went ahead and invented a few things. And anyway, uh, Marcel Vogel was a friend at the time, and he was um, a fellow with an electron microscope. And we were talking, and he said, you know, it'd really be something if we could make a 3D electron microscope. Well, I'd already worked on creating the world's first VR helmet. No one ever had seen anything like that before. Now they're all over the place. So 
I thought, hmm, how do I adapt that? So I figured out a way to create a 3D image once I really dug in and understood how an electron microscope works. And it's really quite complex. But Marcel thought that it might work. And I drew up all the little plans and all the details as best as I could. Because I was certainly not an expert on 3D or on electron microscopes, you know, 3D or otherwise. Um, and submitted it. You know, I thought, oh, well, there's another project and maybe I can do this one for 50 grand because it's probably going to take that much. Well, the next thing you know, they just pulled the grant and pulled all the notes. And little did I understand that everything that I had written down, everything I had developed, everything belonged to them. So it just got whisked away one afternoon with uh, security standing by. It was a very weird time. I'd never seen anything like that before. Anyhow, when uh, these fellows in Great Britain were up for a Nobel Prize um, about nine months later for having the um, a conceptual 3D electron microscope, I figured, yeah, Western Medical must have passed on that information to them. I mean, maybe they figured it out on their own too. I don't know, but it just it just left me feeling kind of cheated, because up to this point, my name's not on anything. Just to have your name on it, so that people don't think that you're a whack job by saying, "Yeah, I did this." It'd be nice to have you know that recognition. Keep the money. I don't care. I don't get money anyway. But at least say, "Yeah, Jerry helped with this." You know, nope, not at all. So I figured at that point, there's no reason to continue trying to do something to help the people of this world through my innovative talents. Uh, it's pretty much everyone here is out for themselves. And so I stopped. I didn't see a reason to continue. I've got plenty of other ideas, but <laughs> why bother? Right. Well, um, that's unfortunate uh, that uh, the, these corporations were just wanting to take your skills, your inventions, your ideas, and do their own thing with it and give you no credit. And, and that kind of like uh, suggests that, you know, maybe they knew a little bit about your your real background, that, uh, you know, you did have this kind of ET origin, and they just wanted to utilize that but give you no credit because that would empower you and they could control you more if, if you were an unknown um just in terms of uh, you, you mentioned zoe a few times and meeting some different uh ets uh, you know, in that critical period in your kind of like uh, uh from what 14 to 18 now you found out that these beings or that your home world is Talseti. so you know, what exactly did you find out about your home world in Talseti? Just a little bit. Um, there was a viewing device on this craft that Zoe would show up in. And <clears throat> basically, you know, he'd show me pictures. Sometimes here's what's coming in the future, which I thought was a little alarming. I didn't like seeing that stuff because it wasn't, it really wasn't very good. And, um, you know, here's, here's, you know, here's home, here's what it looks like, you know, 
it wasn't like I spent hours and hours looking at it because I really didn't have a point of reference. Um, he told me that it was Tau Ceti, that there's a planet there called Lanulos. Um, sounds like a weird name. And that it's a water world. Um, yeah, he told me a bit about it. I'm, I don't, I'm trying to remember some of the details. I don't even remember many of the details anymore. But it was a, a pretty dandy thing. You know, it, it seemed like a great place. <laughs> and when I asked him, uh, you know, because he spoke in terms of mathematics for distances and, you know, and it was up to me to try and refine my knowledge by some of the things he'd throw in there. But it seemed like it was quite a distance away. It's another star. And I asked him, so how long does it take to get from there to here? He says, oh, not very long. Just a few minutes. And I was like, okay. Well, that's, that's fine. Um, you know, there was um, a few occasions where he showed me some stuff like that. And it was just... You know, it didn't take very long at all to go from one place to another. And at the time, I just accepted it like, oh, you know, that's a red pony. Okay, let's talk about the next thing. Um, but yeah, Tau City, that's what he said was the home world. Uh, that there were a few stars in that cluster that had life. And those people that were kind of tall and bluish white more white than blue, of course, but with the big eyes, you know, um, long arms, skinny body. Anyway, they were from one of the companion stars in that system. Um, so there's a diagram that just shows the Tau Ceti system compared to our solar system, and, and, and the green zone is the habitable zone. So you can see a couple of large blue, bluish um, planets there. I, I assume that probably means they're, they're gas giants, but it looks like one of them has a moon. But, uh, yeah, Tau Ceti definitely has a number of planets, and um, any one of those could be a water world. Wow. How about that? I've never seen such a diagram as this, you know, aside from what Zoe showed me, but... It's, it's, you know, we're talking, <laughs> I'm almost 70. So, you know, you figure, oh, I was seeing this stuff when I was like 14, 15 years old. So it's been a long time ago. You try to keep things fresh in your mind like this, but it doesn't always work out. But yeah, I'm, I'm looking at that now. It's fascinating. Yeah. I mean, that, that water world that you described, I mean, it, it could be, uh, just a, one of those habitable planets, or it could be a moon around one of the gas giants there. Uh, you know, we don't know, but definitely Tau Ceti does have a, a habitable habitable zone and a number of planets in there. So, yeah, any one of those could qualify. Wow. I think it's the uh, it's not the one at the far edge over there. I think it's the one closer in, the blue one. What does it say? E, I think. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that one. As I recall, that's the one that, because um, he was showing me something similar to this, is a little bit different layout, but um, it seems like it was like that one would be it. 
Oh, that's interesting. So that's right on the uh, in the habitable habitable zone. So yeah, that that supports what you were told. Amazing. Yeah, it looks like Earth and this other image up here is just a little bit more inside that zone. Um, he did tell me that the uh, star there is a little different than our sun. Um, maybe it's not as big. I don't remember now. But it uh, casts a different spectrum than our sun does. And I think the spectrum on that star was more of a bluish-white than a yellowish white uh, it seems like that's part of what he was explaining to me also mm -hmm. right so uh, you know we know a little bit now about uh, the origins of the ets that had been contacting you um, over the years um, and your own origins from tal seti uh, we know about uh, the military and the corporations trying to use you in various various ways. So after you got disenchanted with working for corporations, at some point you start developing your psychic abilities and you become known um, in the, I guess, Phoenix area or in the Midwest for your psychic healing. And there's a, a news clip. So I just wanted to play that clip. It goes for about a minute, uh, an Arizona Fox news clip about the psychic healing that you did on on an individual that had been put into a coma after being brutally beaten. So uh, can we just play that jazz? Can't hear anything. We can't hear anything, Jazz. Oh, this is about Kelly Osaka. Yeah, yeah. Look at that hair. Ha <laughs> ha. Or maybe you can just talk over it while it's playing. Well, yeah, certainly. And perhaps Jazz will get the audio working. Um, basically, what's happening here is that I was called to help someone. I had a person I didn't know who they were. They would call me, uh, they were a philanthropist, didn't want to be recognized publicly or even privately. There was someone who had been hurt. This fellow um, was from Tonga. Yeah, I'm sure you'll see his picture here perhaps in a minute. That's not him, that's me. Anyway, he'd been beaten and he wasn't expected to live. That's his wife. Um, but I didn't know that he wasn't expected to live. I was just told go to the hospital and see what you can do to help here's where you go here's the situation click so i went and i got there i met this guy's wife the gal that you saw in the video and i had a guy named tony arnold with me uh he happened to be at the shop where i, where I had my store and i just went in i told his wife because she told me she was crying so he, he was beaten you know told me the story I said well don't worry let me see what I can do to help so I went in there he's got tubes in his head he's got stitches I mean his face is all swollen up it was just awful and I proceeded to look inside to see what I could find and then fix the things that were broken and when I got finished 
Um, I went and told his wife. He's going to be fine. He's going to wake up tomorrow with a terrific headache. I couldn't help his left eye. Uh, the doctors had already done something to it, and I couldn't undo what they had done. It just they'd messed it up. So I uh, told her, he's going to be fine. Well, Tony Arnold was just, you know, gulping. Because <laughs> what I didn't know is they didn't expect him to live another two hours. He had severe brain bleeding, had uh, busted places all over in his face and head. Oh, my God, it was a mess. And here I am telling his wife, well, don't worry, you know, he'll wake up tomorrow um, with a terrific headache. Well, as it turns out, he did. And then he related the story to his wife while he had been in this coma, how there's this tall white guy that showed up in his dreams and found him where he was laying in some grass. Well, I had told his wife this already. Uh, and that this tall white guy said, no, you know, come with me. Come on, let's go back where you belong. And so I brought him back and told him he was going to be fine. Well, now his wife is hearing this from her husband. And the next day he did wake up and he did have a bit of a headache. But instead of being in the hospital for months, he was in there for a week or so more and discharged. All the brain bleeding had stopped. Things were healing remarkably fast. And he could go home. He had a ways to go before he was, you know, at a pretty good place. But uh, he survived that. And this thing that I do with the healing is just part of what makes me who I am. It's just something that cycles through me. Uh, like I told you earlier, you know, I was chastised and made fun of for a very long time. But there was an event that took place um, while we were in Peru, while I was in Peru. And I was given a choice to either do what I'd come here to do or not and just carry on with life as uh, it had been going up to this point. I said, well, I choose to do what I came here to do. I'm here to help people. So um, they said, okay, things will change dramatically, but things will change, and you'll have to reorient your life to accommodate those changes. All right, well, that's fine. I don't know what that means. Well, what it meant was getting a divorce, uh, shutting down my business, you know, several, several very severe steps. But I also met Kathy. And Kathy was the first person ever in my life to recognize, because uh, she saw things that I was doing. And she said, well, it's obviously you're, you're, you're here to help people. Why are you working on these machines? You should be working on people. You should be doing something to help people. I said, all right, well, I don't know how to do that. And she says, well, I'll be right by your side. We'll figure it out together. And we did. That was 26 years ago. And since then, uh, Fox TV, you know, that clip that you were attempting to show, they did two of those every year for 11 years. 
the news director for Fox TV wrote a book about me because he followed me for eight years <laughs> to see for himself what the hell the deal was. And I've been all over the world helping people. And um, it's, it's been quite a, an inter interesting time. Well, well, that's quite something that for 11 years that Fox News would run two specials on you and your psychic healing ability. And that, and that kind of like uh, supports, you know, the, the, the incredible uh, revelation that you made about your, your background. And, and, and if you look at it logically, if you take a step back in terms of, well, uh, how would ETs help our world? Um, yeah, sure, they could show up themselves and like, yeah, we're going to give you advanced technology, we're going to heal you, and, you know, we start worshiping them as gods. Well, you know, that's been tried. It didn't work in the past. So they would do didn't it this work. other way with people like you. Well, and, you know, in, the thing is I've had people say, oh, you're this amazing healer, you know, fill in the blanks, you know, whatever they're, they're saying. And I tell them, you know something, I'm just a person. And, yeah, maybe I'm not from here, but really, what the hell does that matter? I mean, where are you from, Michael? Or, I mean, where are you now? I mean, are you, you're somewhere else in the world, right? Just like I am. It doesn't matter where you're from. What matters is who you are and what you do with who you are. And that's the message I try to give people. Regarding the healing, sure, a lot of people seek me out for it. But I try to teach people that they can do this for themselves. It isn't like, a, you know, I'm special because I can do it and you're not special because you can't. You know, I don't want to be elevated into a special something with anyone. That's not the point. The point is to be the example of what you can become. And just because I might be from someplace else, so what? We're all from someplace else, ultimately. But we all have gifts. One of the greatest gifts that we can, we can try and cultivate within ourselves is to increase the dynamic level of knowledge that we have and to be kind to each other. You know, try to meet those two criteria. If you want to know how to do healing, then you can find out. I can tell you. If you want to do this, that, or the other, you know, maybe I'm not the person. Maybe someone else can tell you. But the point is, is that you're not beneath anyone because they have a special ability or a special talent. You don't judge yourself against somebody else. You just try to be the best version of you you can be. And so that's what I try to instill with other people, that... You know, it doesn't matter what you've been, what might you become? Very, very wise advice. I, you mentioned Peru, and I think it'd be nice to maybe finish this particular interview with maybe you just talking a little bit about the importance of Peru for you, because I know you've been there many times, you've led expeditions there, and I was fascinated by your description uh, when I first heard it on the Kevin Smith show about you going to Aramuru and, and encountering the Stargate there. So, yeah, maybe this is something we can pick up on a follow-up interview, but maybe just give people a teaser as to 
what it was that you found there in Peru, especially Aramumuru? Well, Aramumuru is um, a very ancient place that is situated on, I believe it's on ley lines. And you see that uh, weird little notch there at the bottom? That's where you put your knees, then put your head in a little hole. It's right, an indentation right there. Yep, right there with little uh, X's at. Either side of it, that's carved out. This is prehistoric sandstone. It's been cut, polished. If you look at the figure on the top, at a distance, it looks like a woman lying on her back. This was something that I was told about uh, by a, an old fellow. His name was Pedro. He was a master shaman for the Aymara, and the Aymara live around Lake Titicaca. And he said that um, he'd seen people coming in and out of this. So I inquired, and after Pedro and I became better friends, he told me that he always heard these same three tones being made. And, of course, you're talking Aymara to Spanish to English. You know, it might be a little bit lost in translation. But he did make the tones. And he said, it's very dangerous. I wouldn't do it if I were you. And I've not done it. I've just seen the people coming and going. So, well, going back and forth to Peru. <laughs> I mean, some of the things that we've done are just really on the edge of um, dangerous. Some are past the edge of dangerous. I wanted to know. So, Kathy and I, with a group of others, went up there, and I decided I'd make these three tones. And it's cold. It's November, um, I think November 11th. I don't know what year it was, like 98, perhaps 99. And I'm there in a great big white London Fog jacket, and making these tones. Well, I didn't expect that it'd be sucked into the damn thing. Because I, I went into it, as far as Kathy and some of the others that were there were concerned, I just vanished. I was just gone. And Kathy and I had just been married not that long. So it was a bit disturbing for her. And it was terrifically disturbing for me. Anyway, I won't go into all the details, but I did make it back. And when I came back, I felt very grateful to have made it back, and I sure as hell would never try to do that again. The one thing you never think about with something like this, how do you steer this thing? Uh, I have no idea how you steer it. There are rumors and old stories of people up there that have just been sitting there, and they just... Boom, they just got sucked into it, and they're lost forever. So I feel just lucky as hell that I was able to get back. And, of course, Kathy and the others saw me just a shimmering light, and then I was back again. Um, it sounds just, it just sounds like madness, you know, that kind of a story. But it, it honest to God, happened, and I wouldn't do it again. And people have been bugging me for years. What are the three tones? You know something? Whether you want to just leave and never come back or not, I'm not going to give those out. 
I don't, I'm not going to be responsible for someone just disappearing down a, a chute like that. I'm just not going to. So think what you want to think. I really don't give a damn. But I'm not going to provide the three tones. At, you know, I, I would be responsible if someone used them and, you know, never came back. I'm not comfortable with that concept. Well, I think these are natural stargates or portals to other worlds, other dimensions, other kind of locations in the inner Earth. Uh, that's a fascinating topic, and I'd really love to have you back and, and dive deep into that and to look at all of the kind of different expeditions that you've done to different locations. So for people who do want to learn more about you, about your expeditions, so where do they go? Well, we're not doing any expeditions right now. This COVID business has ruined the world. We, we did those for over 25 years, and it was basically trying to find ancient civilizations that existed prior to 12,000 years ago. Because um, there's something coming in the next 20, 25 years that's going to be a real issue. So we tried to find information that might help us. And help others but as far as where they would go to find more information well as far as the healing aspect of it goes jerrywills.com and i have a show like you do michael it's jerrywillshow.com there's some stuff there in the special broadcast section where it's just free the rest of it is uh it's a membership site past that there's a lot of there's a lot of information in the free section too um so, yeah, there you have it. Yep, jerrywills.com. Jerrywills.com, and I know you have a Patreon channel as well for people that want to kind of like, you know, get some of the archived uh, material that you've got. All the archived material is now at jerrywillshow.com, but the membership is handled through Patreon. But you can sign up through Patreon. Just make sure you have your cookies on in your browser. Preferably oatmeal raisin cookies. Those are my favorite. And that way you sign up at Patreon. You go over to jerrywillshow.com and you have access to whatever the um, support level is that you've chosen. Well, uh, Jerry, I think you have an incredible story. Your, your background is fascinating. I would definitely love to have you back and, and talk more about the different expeditions uh, you've done around the world in the search for ancient civilizations we just barely touched that enormous field and i know you've done a lot and and some of the cases that you covered with uh, kevin smith i, I remember uh, you guys talking about these cases and i just want to know you know what what's happened so uh, hopefully uh, you agree to come back i definitely would love to have you back so thank you for being on next politics today well thank you for inviting me on michael like i said at the beginning it's a privilege to be invited on your show Thank you very much, and I'll come back if you like. Just let me know when. You have been listening to ExoPolitics Today with Dr. Michael Sala. Please remember to like, share, and subscribe to this channel. Join or start a conversation in the comments. Take the time to explore the vast library of best-selling books, webinars, and podcasts by Dr. Sala. Visit exopoliticstoday.com. Thank you.